This is Radio Influence. Podcasting redefined. This is Beyond the Badge on Radio Influence. A look inside the biggest and most controversial news stories you need to know now. One of the country's most relied upon law enforcement analysts, Vincent Hill. My goal when I originally tried to get out of the car was to get out and just talk with him for 30 seconds till backup arrived. And then we could investigate the, the stealing further. And if arrests need to be made, we'd have assistance and it would be much safer and more tactical. Good evening and welcome to Beyond the Badge. Of course, I am your host, Vincent Hill, coming to you from Atlanta, Georgia, as I do each and every Tuesday, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, exclusively right here on RadioInfluence.com. And available for downloads on iTunes immediately after the show. Hey, what you just heard was a, a soundbite from Officer Darren Wilson. And for those that don't remember Officer Darren Wilson, he was the center of controversy down in Ferguson, Missouri, back in 2014. So it's been almost three years now. But there's a new video uh, that has surfaced regarding Michael Brown. And if you don't remember Michael Brown, he's the individual that was killed by Officer Darren Wilson, which sparked days and days of protest riots in Ferguson and the whole hands up, don't shoot movement. Uh, President Obama sent the Department of Justice down there to investigate. The Department of Justice actually cleared the officer based on what he said. And I read his reports and I won't bore you with those because we've already talked about those in the show. But I do want to discuss this new video that is now causing more uproar, if you will, more protest at the store where Michael Brown was at just before he was killed. I want to dive into that. Uh, but first, I want to send my prayers to an officer out in Cincinnati who was actually shot on Sunday uh, going to a domestic violence call. And it's ironic. I was actually in Cincinnati over the weekend on business. And when I heard about it, I was already at the airport trying to catch a flight. Uh, otherwise, uh, you know, I would have gone to the hospital to... Uh, say a prayer with that officer to show my respect to that officer and to his family as I did with the officers in Dallas during the Dallas shooting last summer. You know, I flew out there, showed my support. I definitely would have done the same thing there in Cincinnati, but I was already at the airport trying to catch a flight. Officer Kenneth Grubbs was responding to a domestic call just after midnight on Saturday when a suspect drew his gun and shot at him. The suspect actually had two guns, the suspect was identified as Damian McRae, 37 years old. He actually had a uh, Tech 9 and a 22 revolver. And, you know, Tech 9s are, are very dangerous, dangerous guns. They shoot out a lot of bullets in a very short amount of time. And it takes me back to when I chased a carjacking suspect who had a, a Tech 9. And, you know, when that adrenaline's going and you're chasing, you don't think things clearly all the time. But, I assure you, when I went home that night, I, I said a special prayer, and I thank God, kiss my family, that I wasn't killed because a Tech 9 versus my service weapon would have won hands down without a doubt. Uh, but the officer was able to shoot back. He injured the suspect who is now in custody. They're both at the hospital there in Cincinnati. And of course, this guy's facing attempted murder charges on a police officer. He was arrested last fall for some heroin charges and cocaine charges. And this just goes to show what I've always said. Gun control works for no one but 
the law-abiding citizen. Criminals on the streets do not abide by gun control laws. They do not go to the store to buy fully automatic Tech 9 pistols. They do not go to the store to buy stolen 22 revolvers. They get them off the streets. So here's a guy who, in my mind, should have probably been in prison anyway. I mean, he had just been arrested for heroin charges, cocaine charges, but yet he's out on the street. He's assaulting his girlfriend. She called police. Of course, police show up because that's what they're supposed to do. They get a domestic violence call. They show up. He's waiting outside to ambush police. And I hope, I hope, I hope, and I'm pretty sure that this guy will get every year that's coming to him inside a prison somewhere. But I'm glad of, of two things. A, that the officer did not die because we don't want to see that. Enough officers have died this year by gunfire. And as sad as it sounds, but it's true, I'm so glad that the suspect did not die because I assure you, in the city of Cincinnati right now, there would be protests, there would be riots, there would be the Black Lives Matter movement, Al Sharpton, Benjamin Crump, all these guys saying how he shouldn't have been shot and how he was a good kid who went to church on Easter and all that other crap we always hear in these situations. And it would have been racial, it would have been this, and everyone would have ignored the fact that he was loaded to bear to go to war with these officers. So I'm actually glad that this guy did not die. A, because he's going to serve that time. He's not getting out of this. And B, because it just saved the city of Cincinnati a possible riot. Now, speaking of good boys that go to church on Easter, we all remember Michael Brown back in 2014, who, again, started the whole hands up, don't shoot movement. And, of course, Obama was all over it, saying it was a tragedy and, uh, you know, all the stuff that Obama said for the eight years about the racial bias against blacks. And he sent the DOJ down there to investigate and what happened. They cleared this white racist officer. Well, I don't think they cleared him because he's white. I think they cleared him because of the evidence. So just to recap, Michael Brown, Officer Darren Wilson is going down the street. Michael Brown and his buddy are walking down the middle of the street. Officer Wilson says, hey, get out of the street. They yell some profanities and keep going about their way. So what does Officer Wilson do? He backs up to try to make contact with them. Around the same time, there's a radio call that goes out about a robbery at a convenience store. And guess who fit the description? Michael Brown, to a T. Even the flip-flops, he fit the description. So, of course, what does Officer Wilson do? He tries to make contact with Michael Brown. And this is where it went wrong. Now, again, the DOJ cleared Officer Wilson. I've read his reports of how... He couldn't do certain things because he was seated in the patrol, in the, uh, patrol car of how Michael Brown approached him, of how he was in fear of his life, on how he thought that the only resort was deadly force, right? So now there's this new video. Uh, I guess there's a documentary called Stranger Fruit. I haven't seen it yet. I don't even know if it's out yet. But there's a, a filmmaker, uh, and this guy is actually an activist too, uh, claiming that there's a, a surveillance video inside the same market that Michael Brown was seeing what was called in as a robbery. Remember back in 2014, they showed 
Michael Brown pushing the store clerk, store owner out of the way while he's trying to get out of the store with some cigarellos. So now there's this video that says, or that shows Michael Brown in the store about 12 hours before, around midnight, the night before. And this filmmaker slash activist is claiming that Michael Brown was trading marijuana for the cigarellos. Now, you can see in the video, the store clerk takes the box of cigarellos back, puts it on the counter. Michael Brown leaves the store. Now, for whatever reason, this video has shed new light, has caused more protests, more questions in Ferguson. But I don't know why, because here's a few things I noticed, right? So, first of all, the individual in the video at 12 midnight is not the same person that Michael Brown is seen pushing at 11.53 a.m. the next day. So, even if what this filmmaker is saying is true, and we don't have anyone to validate this, by the way, even if what he's saying is true, that Michael Brown went to the store to trade with the clerk marijuana for cigarillas, how would the store clerk at 11.53 know anything about something that happened at midnight if he was not the same individual working at the store and the same individual who made this alleged drug deal for cigarillas with Michael Brown. So the fact still remains that police got a call about a robbery inside the store. Now let's take it one step further. Let's say the clerk that Michael Brown is seen pushing at 11:53 a.m. is the same clerk from midnight. The fact still remains that the call came from the store about a robbery. Now, here's where I have to dumb it down for those that will still say it was unjustified and still wrong and still all of this. The fact is, Officer Wilson, when he woke up that morning, had no clue who Michael Brown was, one, had no clue that Michael Brown was in the store at midnight, had no clue that maybe there was a transaction for marijuana and cigarillas at midnight, had no clue that the clerk that was pushed didn't know about this deal. The only thing Officer Wilson knew was, A, when he first made contact with Michael Brown, he told him to get out of the street. He didn't do it. And B, about 20 seconds later, he gets a call on the radio about a robbery at the store. And guess who fit the description? Michael Brown. So that is all Officer Darren Wilson had to go on. The fact that he made contact and then he got the call. So all of this this uproar about this new video to me is ludicrous because it doesn't change the facts of why Officer Wilson was there. It has nothing to do with it. And for all that may be screaming cover up of why this video is just now surfacing, where do you think the filmmaker slash activist even learned about this video? In the police report. So the police have known about this other video since August of 2014. And they were smart enough to know, the district attorney was smart enough to know, that the video from midnight had no bearing on what happened at 11.58 a.m. on that Saturday. It had nothing to do with it. Therefore, it was a mute point. But I'll go one even further and counter this, this filmmaker. Because the video, yes, it does show Michael Brown pass the cigarillas back to the clerk and the clerk puts them on the counter. So maybe, just maybe, Michael Brown, for whatever reason, decided not to strong arm the store 
at that time because maybe he thought the guy behind the counter, who was much bigger than the guy he was seen in the video pushing, maybe would have put up a struggle. Maybe Michael Brown said, I'll go home and get some money, but then still decided to come back and just take them forcefully because that's what he did, right? We saw it. So the whole theory of, oh, there was a drug deal for the cigarolas and that was Michael Brown's property is ridiculous because there's no basis to say that Michael Brown presented marijuana in that store. Okay, there's video where they show Michael Brown sniffing inside a bag. Okay, maybe it was dog poop. Maybe it was something else. Maybe it was soap. We don't know what it was. But regardless of what it was, it has no bearing on what happened during those crucial moments leading up to his death. The only thing that has to do with that were Michael Brown's actions on that day. Because I've said it a hundred times. Officers respond to the amount of force that the suspect is giving, right? So, guess what? Officer Wilson responded the only way he could. And guess what? Michael Brown's blood was found in Darren Wilson's car, which shows he was inside the car fighting with the officer. Case closed. But the harsh reality is that's not case closed because I got a feeling this is going to linger on and on and on, especially once this documentary is released. You're going to see more protests. You're going to see more people just in an uproar and making it about race once again when it had nothing to do with that. And you can't judge a 20-second, 30-second encounter on race versus the suspect's actions. You just can't do it. All right, I'm going to switch gears and talk about a shooting that happened uh, back in February, February 13th to be exact, in Byron, Texas. Officers uh, responded to, guess what, a domestic uh, dispute call, and the individual walked up. Uh, he wasn't at the home when officers got there. He walked up. Um, he was making furtive movements. For those that don't know what that is, it's just suspicious movements. He kept putting his hand in his pocket. The officer asked him several times to take his hand out of his pocket. You could hear in the dash cam video, I'm sorry, the body cam video, you know, even the individual's family telling him, just show your hands, just show your hands. This went on for several minutes. And while this was going on, uh, the individual, Calvin, uh, I believe Baxter was his name, uh, could you could hear him telling Calvin Baker? I'm sorry. You could he hear him telling the officer, "Are you ready? Are you ready?" And for those that don't know, those are keywords for suicide by cop. And people don't think that really goes on, but it goes on quite a bit. There's always people out there that, for whatever reason, have given up on life, have given up on everything, and think the only way out is not to kill themselves but to have someone else do it. So this went on for several minutes, and the officer showed great restraint, and finally he was forced to pull the trigger. Tell him to drop it! No, I ain't drop, drop it, man! It, Don't make me do this! Do Come on. Talk to me, man! Come on! And I know that may be disturbing for some people to hear, but that's the reality of police work. And when I said the officer showed great restraint, you could even hear him pleading with Mr. Baker, please don't make me do this. 
because contrary to popular belief, contrary to what you see in mainstream media, police don't wake up every day with the intention of going out and shooting someone. Trust me, in the five and a half, almost six years that I did the job, there was not a day where I woke up and said, hmm, you know what? I want to go shoot someone. The only shooting I did was on the gun range. Every year during qualification, during in-service, and when I got to the range to shoot on my own just because I wanted to keep my skills up. But believe you me, there is not an officer in the world that just wants to wake up to go kill people because it's not human nature. And police are human, contrary to what you think. So it's clear to me this this Mr. Baker had in his mind that he was going to die that night. He had it in his mind when he saw that officer, that was his way to die. Because apparently he had some little disturbance with his girlfriend, a fiance, or whoever this, this lady was. And in the dash cam, I'm sorry, the body cam, you can hear her say, oh, he's staying at a shelter. So I think Mr. Baker had given up on life and he chose this officer. He made this officer do the unthinkable. He made this officer end his life. And you can hear in the officer's voice. He did not want to do this. But suicide by cop is very, very common. It happened out in California on yesterday. This individual had poured gasoline on himself, had a lighter inside a car on a traffic stop. The police trying to save his life sprayed him with the fire hose until he came out of the vehicle. And guess what he did? He pulled a knife and ran at police. He wanted to end his life. And he made the police do the unthinkable. He put that burden on the police. And that's not something that those officers in California will get over quick. It's not something this officer in Byron, Texas will get over quick with Calvin Baker because no one, no one, unless you're a serial killer or mass murderer, no one wants to go out and kill individuals. It's not in our nature. So what can police do to prevent this, right? Well, it's easy to say just know the signs of suicide, but in many cases, you don't know the signs of suicide. You don't know this person's mental history. You don't know what they've been through. You only know at that moment that this individual is acting erratic. This individual is refusing commands to show your hand. This individual is reaching in his pocket after given several times over several minutes of commands not to do it. So it's it's easy for one on the outside that has never done the job to say, oh, just know the signs of suicide. But it's not that simple because officers still have an obligation, a duty to protect not only the public, but themselves. So what one person may be thinking that they're suicidal, the officer may be thinking this individual is making a threat against my life or someone else's life, and I have to react accordingly using deadly force. Now, to be clear, there are some clear indicators that a person is suicidal, and they're pretty easy to pick up on, right? Where an individual says, kill me, kill me. I think that's pretty easy to pick up on. Where the individual keeps saying, are you ready? Are you ready? That's telling the officer mentally that something physical 
is about to happen. Something that is possibly going to be deadly force is about to happen. And that's what Mr. Baker said. Are you ready? He said it several times. And I'll post the dash cam body cam video on my Twitter at Vincent Hill TV so you can watch it for yourself. And when I say the officer used great restraint, he did. But I think he knew in his mind something was about to happen. Something bad was about to happen. And the officer used the very last resort at the very last minute. Now, some other things that you can take into consideration. 42% of individuals that have attempted or have died by suicide by cop have had history of domestic violence. And that's what happened there in Byron, Texas. They had substance abuse, uh, alcohol abuse. Of course, those things are not easily detected unless you know the history of this individual. And 38% had criminal history. Uh, 50%, this is, this is high, 50% were actually intoxicated. Those are pretty easy to, to spot out, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, however they handle their liquor is the same as someone else's and maybe they get suicidal when they're drunk. Maybe they start thinking of other things in their life when they're drunk. 50% of the individuals that attempted suicide by cop were intoxicated. And here's one that bothers me. 8%, 8% of those that attempted or succeeded in dying by suicide by cop used replica handguns. So in their mind, they knew that this gun could not do any harm to an officer, but yet because they wanted to die yet because they wanted to commit suicide by cop, they used a replica gun, which we know. And if you don't believe me, just think back to Tamir Rice, which we know nowadays looks so real that the officer has no idea that it's a toy gun and he's forced to use deadly force when he thinks what the threat against his life is there. But do you think it makes it any easier for that officer once he learns that, oh, it was just a toy gun? No, because he still goes through the same emotions. He still is human. He still doesn't want to kill. He still does everything he can to prevent escalating a situation to deadly force and only uses deadly force as a last result. So just because it's a replica gun doesn't make it any easier on that officer's feelings like, oh, well, he couldn't have killed me, uh, so it's okay. No, it doesn't work that way. You know, I think back to an incident I had when I was in patrol, and it was based on a simple traffic stop for wrong plate, which quickly escalated, kind of like in Byron, Texas, because the individual wouldn't show me his hands. He kept reaching in his pocket. I gave him several commands not to do that. Eventually, I tried to go ahead and get control of the individual, at which time we started fighting. The fight went on for several minutes, several minutes, and whatever I was doing to this individual, and I now know he was on the Lottets, which is what he had in his pocket, everything I did, he wasn't feeling. And he kept telling me, and excuse my French, you're going to have to kill me, motherfucker. This is what this guy was telling me as we were scrapping in the middle of the street in Nashville. So can you imagine my emotions? Can you imagine what I'm thinking? Can you imagine that at some point I thought I was going to have to use deadly force against this individual because I had gone through the use of force continuum. I had done everything I could, but I think in that individual's mind and looking back again, he had a history of domestic violence. 
He had a history of substance abuse. Heck, he was eating Dilaudids in front of me like they're candy. And if you don't know what Dilaudids are, they're kind of like morphine. It's a little pill, but the people that are addicted to them usually crush them up in water and shoot them up like heroin. And when I say they don't feel anything, they don't feel anything. So at that moment, this individual thought, well, I guess I'm just going to go ahead and die and you're going to have to kill me. He wanted suicide by cop. Thankfully, it didn't end that way, but it very well could have ended that way for me. And I could have been in the news on one of these stories. All right, I'm transitioning into my 10-7 segment honoring a fallen officer and tonight's officer, police officer Houston, I'm sorry, Houston James Largo, Navajo Division of Public Safety, Tribal Police in uh, New Mexico. He died a day later after a shooting that occurred around 11 p.m. on Saturday, March uh, 11th. So he just passed this weekend. Of course, he was responding to a domestic violence call. And believe me when I tell you, those are the most dangerous calls. It's not like TV. Uh, the shooting occurred around 11 p.m. He was flown to the University of New Mexico Hospital, where he passed away the following day. The suspect was taken into custody. Officer Largo had served with the Navajo Division of Public Safety for a total of five years. I want to thank him for giving the ultimate sacrifice in a career that he loved, in a career that's not for everyone. Godspeed to him. My prayers to his family. I want to thank you for listening tonight, and I will see you next week right here at RadioInfluence.com. To continue the conversation, get updates on the show, and to find out when you can see him on television, follow Vincent on Twitter, at Vincent Hill TV. That's at Vincent Hill TV. This has been Beyond the Badge on Radio Influence. Hey guys and gals, this is Ian Beckles. You may know me from my nine seasons in the NFL or from listening to me in sports radio for years. But now you get to see and hear the real me, uncensored me and also unfiltered as well on my new podcast, Ian Beckles, Flavoring Your Ear. What's flavoring your ear? I'll tell you what it is. It's a whole lot of fun. Food, fashion, sports, sex, politics, and my personal adventures as well. And a whole lot more food. Make sure to check out Ian Beckles, Flavoring Your Ear, each Friday on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and RadioInfluence.com.